Welcome to All Power to the Developing, a podcast of the Eastside Institute. I'm Lois Holzman, co-founder and director of the Institute, and I want to tell you where our title comes from. The Institute is a center for social change efforts that reinitiate human and community development. We support, connect, and partner with committed and creative activists, scholars, artists, helpers, and healers all over the world. Way back in 2003, Institute co-founder, the late Fred Newman and I, had a paper published with the title, All Power to the Developing. This phrase captures how vital it is for all people to grow, develop, and transform emotionally, socially, and intellectually, if we are to have a shot at creating something positive out of the intense crises we're all experiencing. Our hope is that this podcast series will show you that far from a slogan, all power to the developing is a loving activity, a pulsing heart in an all too cruel world. Hello everyone and welcome to All Power to the Developing. I'm your host, Mary Fridley, and I'm a member of the faculty at the Eastside Institute, where Susan Massett and I have created and lead the Joy of Dementia, You've Gotta Be Kidding workshop series. I trained in the Institute's social therapeutics approach. I've served as a social therapist for over a decade and have spent the last 40 years building the development community of which the Institute is a part. I also have the honor of serving as coordinator of Reimagining Dementia, a Creative Coalition for Justice, which has brought together about 460 plus people living with dementia, care partners and family members, advocates, artists, activists, and anyone else who wants to creatively transform the conversation and culture of dementia from one shaped by stigma, fear, and just often cruel dehumanization to one of shared humanity and growth. I am thrilled to be here today with three of those very creative pioneers, Jennifer Carson, Eileen Moncour, and Claire Molyneux. Dr. Jennifer Carson is director of the Dementia Engagement Education and Research Program in the School of Community Health Sciences at the University of Nevada, Reno. Dr. Carson works with tribal, rural, and urban communities across the state as project director of Dementia Friendly Nevada Initiative and is a founding member of Reimagining Dementia, a Creative Coalition for Justice. Eileen Moncour is a long-term practitioner of social therapeutics who's dedicated her life to human development and community building. She co-leads short-term groups of creating new performances of dementia, memory loss, and growing older and is studying with the Eastside Institute to become a life performance coach. She's also a nonprofit leader with more than 23 years experience. Claire Molyneux is a senior lecturer on the Masters of Music Therapy at Anglia Ruskin University in the United Kingdom. A registered music therapist with over 20 years experience working with people with diverse needs across the lifespan in both the UK and New Zealand, Claire is currently undertaking PhD research exploring the impact of group music therapy for people living with dementia and their companions. 
What I love and admire about these women is the humanity, the courage, the compassion, the curiosity, and just the deep love they all bring to their work with people living with dementia. It has just been a joy to get to know them better. And I'm really excited for you also to get to know their better, their work, and just what they've meant to so many people. Uh, I know the word inspired can be overused, but they really, really do inspire me. Uh, so let's begin. Um, to kick things off, I'd love for the three of you to share a bit more about your work, how you came to be working in the dementia arena, your dementia journey, and why it's been important for you to challenge what we've come to call the tragedy narrative. And you can say more about that and what that means to you. Um, so Jennifer, why don't you kick things off? Thanks, Mary. And thanks for having me as part of this conversation. Um, I got my start in the realm of dementia support at the very young age of 12 <laughs> when I became a nursing home volunteer. I used to go with my mother um, who worked at a nursing home in Prescott, Arizona. And at the age of 12, I would bring my guitar on weekends to play songs for the residents while my mom worked as a nurse. They called her Doris Day of the Dementia Ward. <laughs> this is back in the 80s. And uh, it really was a dementia ward. Um, so this is back when nursing homes were still just incredibly institutional. And the care and treatment of people who were living with dementia was, well, I guess in a word, inhumane. <laughs> and so my mother was really a beam of light in this very dark space. And as a child, I just remember watching my mom work with residents who so many other people disregarded, ignored. Um, and But my mother developed these genuine relationships with each and every resident she served. And I saw these residents just light up whenever my mother was around. And I watched my mom and I, I, I studied her mannerisms and how, how is it that my mom was making these connections in ways that other people weren't really connecting. And so I'm really grateful to my mother for showing me the way to be more person and relationship centered before the field even had words to describe those approaches. And so I fell in love uh, working with people who were living with dementia at that young age of 12. And all through high school, then I just continued working in nursing homes. And the gifts that I received back from the people who were living with dementia were so much greater than I think any contributions that I could make in their lives. And so I guess selfishly, <laughs> I, I, grew so much due to my relationships with people who were living with dementia. And I just thought, my goodness, if this could be my work, boy, if I, you know, I just found a treasure here and have since committed my life. Um, that was over 30 some years ago, almost 40 years ago now. I've never left the field. And it's really been a journey of learning and unlearning what I can do as a care partner, what we all can do as care partners to really support the well-being of people who are living with dementia. Because I have seen it myself so many times 
that people really can live well and thrive with dementia. But so much of that is really dependent upon the social and physical environment in which they find themselves. And so there's so much that each one of us can do to support the well-being of people living with dementia. And so I've really committed my life to that both as a care partner in practice, as well as as a researcher and as, as an educator. And um, so I'm, I'm really grateful over the years. I think one of the things I've learned just in kind of wrapping up this intro um, is how much everyone's lives can be enriched when we really embrace partnerships. Um, I'm not a caregiver to people who are living with dementia. I am a care partner. And we work together in partnerships to improve the well-being, not just of the person who's living with dementia, but the well-being of everyone within the context of care and support. And so in that regard, I'm very much a beneficiary of those person and relationship-centered approaches that my mom taught me at such a young age. Jennifer, I just want to ask a quick follow-up, and then obviously we want to hear from Eileen and, and Claire. But since a lot of the people listening to this tragedy narrative is not going to mean a lot to them, even though it shapes how we all experience and think about dementia, no matter who we are. Could you say a little bit about what that is, how you've experienced it in your work, just to kind of set a context? Sure. Well, um, yeah, thank you. Because a lot of my work is about transcending that tragedy narrative. The narrative that we have been fed uh, by the media that um, you know, the stereotype of dementia, that it's all gloom and doom, and that a person is fading away into nothingness. And you know, that might be a really effective narrative to use if you're trying to, let's say, raise funds <laughs> for, um, you know, for scientific research or for other efforts. Um, it's really hard, I, I imagine, to raise funds when you um, are sharing a positive story of dementia, that people can live well with dementia. And so I think that's why the tragedy narrative is so pervasive. Often that tragedy narrative has been really rooted in a biomedical only view of dementia um, that tends to really pathologize the communication of people who are living with dementia, tends to see um, care and support more in like downstream reactive interventions, like what, you know, what are the non-pharmacological or pharmacal interventions we can use, you know, for treatment. And so that tragedy narrative seems to kind of be intrinsically tied up with this biomedical only view of dementia that is really reductionistic. Um, and it really limits opportunities and potential for people who are living with dementia to live well. And so increasingly, you know, while the tragedy narrative is tied to that biomedical only view of dementia, I would say a narrative focused on possibilities for living well is more tied to social and relational approaches to dementia care and support. And so that's what my work is all about is trying to, um, it's not that I've totally disregarded the biomedical view of dementia, um, but you know, that's only one eye, that's only one lens. And I tend to see the world a lot better when I'm using both eyes. And so the other eye 
that I take to my work is that social relational approach. And that is the lens of dementia that opens a completely different story. It's a completely different narrative. It is a narrative of possibilities, not of tragedy. Thank you. Eileen, let's continue with you because in some ways Jennifer set it up very well, that it being so important to support people living with dementia to live well. You obviously practice a social therapeutic approach, which also I think in addition to, if in a way completing living well, it's also helping people to continue to grow and develop and in a way recreate their lives. So maybe you could say a little bit more about, tell us a little bit about your work and kind of how you've experienced this. Sure. Um, and it's just, I want to say it's so wonderful to be here um, with you, Mary and Jennifer and Claire. It's really an honor. Um, I, I've practiced social therapeutics for more than 23 years now. And it is a radically humanistic group-oriented approach to human development that relates to people as performers and creators of their lives at any age and any stage, including those with um, cognitive uh, issues. And it's been a really fundamental, fundamentally and profoundly important part of my life. I think it's probably saved my life. <laughs> and um, at the same time in my professional career, I've been a nonprofit executive and I've been working with marginalized communities in Southeast Asia, in Burma, Thailand, and Nepal. And I've really been working with communities that are in profoundly difficult situations, people who are living in refugee camps, young girls who are really at risk of being trafficked, um, very, very poor disabled children who are discriminated against. And I found myself bringing that lens of social therapeutics to my professional work that sees people as being able to perform and create life even in very difficult circumstances that they have choices that they can create with pain, that they can create with difficulty. And so as that has become more and more of a blurred way, it's, I've incorporated that into my professional work. And when the opportunity came to lead to co-lead some short-term groups about three years ago with um, you know, working with people with dementia, growing older, memory loss, I jumped at the opportunity. And I feel like I have really grown. I didn't come into the work of dementia specifically because of dementia, but it's in a much broader context of human development. That human development is a social activity that we live life in groups. And that it's when we create an environment socially where people can grow, where they can be both who they are and who they're not, that development takes place. Um, and so it's been really wonderful in the last few years to have that dementia lens, to have a closer look at what the tragedy narrative is. And all of our groups are mixed. So it's not just people living with dementia, it's caregivers, it's people whose parents are dealing with cognitive issues, it's people who are afraid of getting older. So it's a very mixed and rich environment. Um, so I think I'll stop there. <laughs> Claire, um, I love what Jennifer said when you were talking about your mom and you described her as kind of a beam of light in a very dark space. 
And actually, I very much, I think that very much resonates with your work, Claire. I mean, it, it, it does to me since I've gotten to know you over the last year or so. So with that, we'd love to, you know, have you share a little bit more about your work and how you've been engaging the tragedy narrative. Thank, thank you, Mary. And um, yeah, um, likewise, it's a real pleasure to be here and be part of this conversation. So thank you very much for inviting me. Um, I guess um, the things that I, I've just sort of been thinking about as I was listening to Jennifer and Eileen introduce themselves um, is this idea of possibilities and potential and the idea of, um, I think Eileen, you said something about performing and creating life in very difficult circumstances. And when I reflect on my work as a music therapist over the last 25 or so years, um, I feel really fortunate to have had the tool of music um, as something available to me in, in my practice. Music is something um, that um, we all have an innate response to. Um, we can all connect to music. And um, I've just learned so much from the people that I've worked with um, who can, you know, perhaps not, not move or not respond um, using language. Um, all of their self-care needs might need to be met by somebody else. And yet through music, we're able to um, really have a wonderful way of, of, of interacting and, and being together. Um, so I, I feel really passionate about the tool of music um, as a way to help us be together, to help us communicate, um, and to help us express ourselves. Um, and over my the years of working as a music therapist, I've worked with people across the lifespan, um, right from, from six months old up until um, people at, at, at the end of life um, in, their, in, their, in their late 90s. Um, and my current clinical work is with people living with dementia um, and their companions um, in, a, in a community project. And one of the things that I find really exciting about this project um, Together in Sound is that we're working with couples together um, and um, supporting couples to live well with dementia. And the work not only supports them as a couple, but it reaches out to try and support the community around them, um, engaging school children in some of the, 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 the events that we have. Um, inviting people from the local community as um, part of that attempt to really show people um, what life can be and the different stories that can be told about living with dementia. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I think it'd be interesting and, and maybe... Um, Again, maybe we'll come back to you, Eileen, and then kind of have everyone chime in. But I think it'd be very helpful to hear what some of this work looks like kind of day-to-day -day in the groups and the music groups and the work that Jennifer does. And, you know, what, give us a sense of the life of it and what its impact has been, both on the people that you work with and what you've seen, but also on you, like, sure. How has it impacted on you? What have you learned? Sure. So, I mean, there's a couple of, of stories that, examples that really come to mind quickly. Um, 
One is a really wonderful woman who has been diagnosed with Alzheimer's, who has come to many of our groups. And she was often accompanied by her best friend. They've been best friends for many, many years. And first of all, she has very, um, her short-term memory was pretty much non-existent. And she was one of the leaders in the group. She was very vocal. She loved being in the group. She was very much a leader, participating, interacting with people, and continuously asking for more. She's the one who wanted us to do more groups. And she would quickly forget that she had asked that. But week by week, the groups would remember. And they held that. The group held that. Um, memory and the group was responsible for organizing more sessions that she would come and participate in. And the beautiful thing about the, the friend who came is that she came in a role of caregiver and she really didn't expect to be doing work on her for herself. And what she reflected back to us, you know, over the weeks was she felt transformed by the work. She, it impacted on how she was feeling about growing older. And together in their relationship, they were able to start to have conversations that they hadn't been able to have for 50 years. So it, on many, many weeks, it's, it's ordinary. It's people coming in. It's, you know, it's talking about the ordinariness of our lives. But it, there's the way that the group is holding it, that the group transforms. And in that people transform, including myself. Um, I have found myself thinking about, you know, the, the way that I've been relating to people with dementia or Alzheimer's in the groups and really thinking about this model of, of where is meaning, you know, that when I relate to a very young child um, who is a non-speaker, I relate with full meaning with, you know, the words themselves don't matter. And so I think as I'm co-leading these groups, I really try to take that performance with me into the group, that the words do not matter. It's our activity that we're, be, that we're creating together that matters. Thank you. And before we, um, I know everyone is, is dying to hear from, from Jennifer and Claire, but we're gonna take a, a brief break and we'll be back uh, in a moment after a quick message. Hi, I'm Melissa Meyer, Associate Director of the Eastside Institute. Welcome to All Power to the Developing. I hope you're enjoying today's conversation. In each episode, we introduce you to some amazing performance activists, play revolutionaries, and developmentalists from around the world who talk to us about their creative grassroots efforts to build a better world. If you like what you hear, please follow and share the series. You can find us on Amazon, Spotify, and Podbean. We'd love to hear your comments and ideas. Like everything at the Institute, the growth of all power to the developing depends upon the people who create it and benefit from it. We hope you're one of them. Thanks for your support. And now back to our conversation. Welcome back. Uh, so let's continue the conversation. Um, Claire, 
I was thinking, and again, obviously feel free to, to respond to anything that's been said before, but I, I, I think a lot of people know, even folks who don't know a lot of dementia, but they'll often talk about that, that music seems to have a particularly special power to reach people living with dementia. Um, and so I was wondering just what the power of music is for you and kind of what have you discovered about it in your work? What's that look like? Um, so I'll pick up on your first point first. So um, yes, um, music does have a, a special power um, for us. We know neurologically that music is processed really broadly across the brain. And so when there is neurological damage, it means that actually a, a response to music is often still available and still intact to us. Um, and then also music has really powerful associations and, and, and memories for us. And we can use music to, um, you know, elicit memories um, and, and previous experiences. Um, and I think the other thing that is really special and um, about the work that we do is to use improvisation so that our work with people with dementia is not just about using music to um, perhaps reminisce or um, recall things or to sing old familiar songs from that you know sort of music bump that we might talk about where all those musical memories are laid down but that when we improvise we're actually um, creating new things together we're having that opportunity to really be in relation to one another and create something new um, and I think that's one of the really exciting um, aspects of the work that, that I'm doing at the moment with people with dementia and um, you know being able to see somebody actually contribute to to creating a song or um, composing a melody that they, we then might turn into something that becomes a shared musical piece with with people or just that moment of finding a way to improvise in the moment um, together so that that for me is one of the, the really magical um, things that that we do um, and I, I think, you know, sometimes our, our, our work, you know, we might come to, come to a session and, you know, there's a lot to do when we're running groups. Um, you know, there's a lot of energy involved in running groups. But I think one of the other things about music is that it nourishes and nurtures me as a therapist as well. So just simply that experience of being able to play and make music together um, gives energy to me. So there are really positive um, associations that, that I have, which make me want to return to this work over and over and over again. A couple of just follow-up things. I, I mean, again, I've seen videos of your work, but maybe you could share with our listeners, just what's the session like? What do you do? What do people come in and do? And then I was wondering if you've had a similar experience to what Eileen was talking about in the sense that you know, your groups involve care partners and family members too. And whether or not they've discovered something surprising, like how, how has it impacted on them by then of being part of the groups? Yeah, so um, our sessions um, run weekly. Um, we always have a social tea time as part of the session. That's really important to allow people to transition into a new space and to just come together. Um, and then we'll move into the music therapy session we always begin with a hello song, um, which is just a really simple song, but it's the same song every week. And that's a really important um, sort of grounding point that people know they're coming into this session. Um, we'll always include some improvisation. We'll include some song singing in sessions. 
Um, and over the course of a, of a 10 week period, um, we might be doing some um, songwriting. We might be working on a particular sort of theme for improvisation. We'll invite our participants to um, bring in objects perhaps so that we can get to know them a little bit better. Um, and you know they can tell us some stories about their lives and we might find ways that we can link those together musically. Um, and then generally the groups will decide on a closing song that they want. And um, you know sometimes it's the same song each week and other times a group will say, actually, you know, we want a different song this week. We want to go off, you know, so that we can be feeling lively and energized. Um, or, or a group might want a, a more reflective song to finish. So, you know, it's really a very, um, an experience where we're very much working in partnership with people. It's not led by us as therapists. Um, we're co-creating something in, in the moment together. And, and that's, you know, one of the things that's really special. Um, Mary, you asked about, um, you know, whether I've had experiences similar to what Eileen described. Um, I remember, one of our participants, um, um, the companion, uh, his wife um, had lived with dementia for, for a long time um, and he came along primarily for her. And I think after about six months said, well, I really hadn't anticipated that these groups would be as much for me as they are for my wife. Um, and, you know, he talked about um, finding companionship, finding, um, you know, a community of people who um, shared similar problems and had similar needs in life and that that was something that he could take strength from. Um, and I, I hear that a lot, that, you know, there is... Um, yeah, there is change for, for everybody. And one of the things that happened, we started our groups and we said, actually, originally, people had to come as couples, um, you know, so the person with dementia and, and their companion, whether it was a family member or somebody else. And then um, people with dementia would come to a point where perhaps they couldn't come to the groups anymore. Perhaps they'd moved into care. Perhaps they had passed away. Um, and yet the companions were saying, we still want to be part of this community. And so we found a way to be able to welcome our individual companions into the groups as well. So we now have mixed groups, which are consist of some people coming in in dyads and some companions who have been coming along for a, a, a very long time. Um, so I think that's, you know, living, living with dementia is a community concern. It's not just about the person who has the diagnosis of dementia. Um, it's something that the whole family lives with, the whole community lives with. And so I think that a project like, um, like Together and Sound, we really do have a responsibility to, to try and reach out on that community level. And thank you, Claire. Um, Jennifer, I, I, I'm sure you have many responses to, to what Claire was saying, what, what Eileen has been talking about. And, and, and we really am very interested in hearing more about this in the context of your work. But I'm also, I think I've heard you speak, I think, I would love to hear you speak more in however you want to, to, to what Claire was saying about this being, dementia being belonging to all of us, that we all have a relationship with dementia. I think one of the biggest misconceptions is that the only people impacted on it by are people living with it. Um, 
And kind of you've touched on this beginning, kind of all that you've learned and unlearned over the last 30 years, just how what, how we even see this. So it's kind of a hodgepodge, but I, I kind of wanted to to have you touch on some of that as part of your talking about, you know, sharing more about your work. Sure, Mary. I think one of um, the interesting things that I've learned over the last few decades is that much of the tragedy narrative of dementia is really a social construction. You know, our culture, our society, our communities have very much socially created this narrative of dementia, the way we think about dementia, the way we respond to people who are living with dementia, the way we value or do not value people who are living with dementia. This is a social construction and we all have a role to play. And we can all also play a role in deconstructing the tragedy narrative. We can deconstruct um, what many people unfortunately accept as truth, um, that, um, that, that living with dementia is a tragedy only. And we can co-create a different story. And I think that is one of the themes um, between all of us here today is that we are all committed to that co-creation of a better and more just future for people who are living with dementia. And that I completely agree with Claire, this is a, a community issue, not just a private or personal or even family issue. And when we look at the growing numbers of people who are living with dementia, we can really begin to appreciate why it's so important that we begin to embrace this as a community issue. And so much of my work of learning and unlearning and continuing to grow and evolve over the years um, has kind of been about questioning my formal education on dementia, which was really steeped in a biomedical model of understanding um, and, and really um, starting to open up space for other ways of understanding dementia. Um, some of my greatest teachers, of course, are people who are living with dementia. And a lot of my work has, it, it, there's kind of been an evolution in my career, first of really trying to understand personhood and person-centered approaches, and then recognizing that those are limited. You know, it's wonderful to really understand each person living with dementia is a unique and incredible human being and really we should all be concerned with personhood and how to support a person's personhood but supporting a person's personhood is not necessarily the same as engaging that person in the decisions that affect their lives and so I had to build on that foundation of personhood into a relational space of dementia support and understanding that personhood exists within the fabric of social relationships. And so I started to really learn more about relationship-centered approaches to care and support that really considered the well-being of everyone in the context of care. And then my journey took me beyond just relationships to understand the power of partnerships. And that if we really want to practice great person relationship-centered care, the best way we could do it is by working in an authentic partnership with people who are living with dementia and with family care partners. 
And so in this regard, we're really challenging the dominance of expert paradigms or expert ways of knowing and opening up and really embracing the lived experience of people who are living with dementia and family care partners and learning together that we are on a journey of learning together and doing better together. And when I believe when we can really commit to working in partnership with people living with dementia, when we can really commit to co-creating a better future, then what we're really doing is helping to create better communities. Um, so really my, my work now has kind of gone from personhood and relationship-centered and partnership approaches to active citizenship. And how can we open up those spaces for the continued active citizenship of people who are living with changing cognition, very much the same way that we open up a space for active citizenship for all citizens. And, um, you know, so people living with dementia have a ton to contribute to helping us continue to, to learn and to unlearn what we think we know about dementia. People who are living with dementia can continue to be contributors, not just in their own lives and in the lives of, of family members, but also in their communities, in the health and fabric of their communities. And so I think that's where a lot of my work is today is about helping open spaces, um, protecting spaces for active citizenship. And so I've kind of gone from a lot of my work being focused on care interactions, point of care, you know, I used to be a direct care partner for many years, um, providing, you know, assistance with activities of daily living and so on. And, and I've moved kind of from that intimate care partnership now to thinking about care partnerships as they relate to entire communities. And so now instead of point of care, I'm more, I'm a coalition builder. And, and which is interesting, I didn't start my career in dementia support ever dreaming <laughs> that I would be a coalition builder. But if you look at the different projects that I'm working on to really challenge and resist that tragedy narrative, if you look at you know, my work and what I'm doing in partnership with people living with dementia to write a new story, it's all done through collaborative coalitions and people who are living with dementia, you know, they, we don't want them just at the table. We want them to help lead, lead the effort, lead the coalition, um, really be the co-creators of a better future. And so I think that's kind of, a, I think that's what Eileen and Claire and I have in common is really that commitment to co-creation. And I think all of us are really interested in creating inclusive communities that open up possibilities for living well. I agree. And I was thinking just after the work that Susan and I have done with the joy of dementia and, and obviously our backgrounds in social therapeutics is because I was, I don't know, it came to me one day that there's person centered, there's relationship centered. And then I realized, well, it was the way I was going to characterize it, it would be environment centered. That we're very involved, as I think all of you are, in creating environments in which everyone can participate in what we kind of come to call non knowing growing. Love it. That it's a way of growing that allows the whole of personhood, the creativity, the silliness, the nonverbalness, the, you know, the physicality of people to to be incorporated in ways that it isn't. And I and I would love to get your response to something, and this is totally unplanned. 
Um, but I was talking to some dementia colleagues last night and it was a really wonderful conversation, but, but one of the things that came up is a couple of people were expressing kind of frustration and a bit anger, but kind of the frustration, anger of on one hand, you know, what we hear often is you just need to educate people. You just need to educate people. You just need to educate people. And I'm all for education. And it's a, you know, I, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not criticizing that. And as a couple of them were expressing, we've been educating, we've been writing books, we've been writing articles. We, it's not like there's not organizations and agencies. And as she said, not much is changing. You know, it's, it's just, and, and there was just, I think, a real pain and, and passion there. So one of the things I love about your work is I think you're giving people alternatives to that model, because to me, what we began to talk about is that in a funny kind of way, we respond to people living with dementia with this wholehearted support for them being opening up every possibility of connectivity. And yet the education model pretty much relies on is, is a almost purely cognitive appeal, which is ironic. And honestly, I think it's one of the reasons it doesn't work that way. It doesn't relate to the rest of the world as creators, as people who could actually touch and connect and create a way of being with that, that actually might take them further. So I'm just curious what your response is to that. Um, and both in your own experience, but just kind of hearing me say it now for the first time, because I think it's a big issue. And I've, I've never been happy with this kind of leading with education in that sense. But I would love to hear how you feel about it. Well, I love the phrase non-knowing growing. That, that, that's how I have grown <laughs> in dementia. It's, it, you know, I'm, I'm grateful that, you know, I, that I have received education in this space. Um, but, um, but thinking that you know everything there is to know about how to do something well is incredibly limiting. And what I have learned increasingly is that my interactions and my role as a care partner go much better when I enter into any situation with a beginner's mind that I don't know, and that together we will create. Um, that that beginner's mind, not, oh, I know all of this stuff up here. It's, it's actually my beginner's mind. That embrace of, of non-knowing growing um, that I think has enabled me to work with the complexities of dementia support. Dementia support is so complex. Living with dementia is such a complex experience. There is no recipe, there is no blueprint, there is no formula that any of us can learn that will helps, help us to be um, really empowering, supportive, enabling, and to promote well-being across all people in all contexts. It just doesn't exist because it's complex, and that's because human beings are complex. No two people are the same and no two experiences of living with dementia are the same. And so as soon as we think we have a blueprint or a formula that, you know, even if it's been informed by, you know, the so-called evidence, um, it, that it's actually incredibly limiting of possibilities 
to take that approach too far. I'm grateful that I've read literature. I'm grateful that I've received formal education. I'm, I read books. I try to learn from other people. It's the way that we apply knowledge that can be very dangerous. It, that, that's dangerous, is the application of that knowledge across all peoples, all communities, the homogenization of experience is, is just, a, it's not a helpful track to be on. And so it's, um, I'm, you know, so yeah, learn what you can, but then enter into each situation with a very open mind to learning and unlearning. And I think that, that we'll all be better off. <laughs> I, I wanted to just add to that. Thank you, Jennifer. I, I, I wanted to add something about um, finding ways to embrace different ways of knowing as well. Um, and I think that, you know, when we are, you know, living in a world, as you've said, Mary, where um, the, the spoken word, the written word is the main way that things are communicated, we, we miss a whole wealth of um, different ways to know about the world. Um, and, you know, I, I, I learned a huge amount from working with people with autism over the years, which certainly influences um, the ways I've learned to be in a musical relationship with, with people that I work with, including people with dementia. Um, and so I, you know, in, in my PhD research, for example, I'm using arts-based methods to be able to both explore the um, data that I've collected and also present the data that I've collected so that people who are engaging with the research hopefully can have a bit of an experience of, um, you know, some, some sense, um, some sensory experience of um, engaging with the material. Um, some different ways of communicating experience. So I just wanted to add that in. And I, I guess I'm curious as well, Eileen, you might have experiences of that as well in your work. I do. I, I was thinking as we're having this conversation, um, one, of my ex one of the thoughts that's going through my head is that as humans, we are continuously performing and creating our lives every second of every day. Whether we're a baby, whether we're doing this work, whether we're a person living with dementia, it's a continuous activity. And what I love about creating these environments that I've been doing in this work is that there's an environment where we can hold this and create new performances with everyone. It's very inclusive. So it's not just the person living with dementia, it's myself as a co-leader, it's anyone that's in that group. You, there's a, an, an opportunity to experience the performatory nature of who we are as humans and that that is not based in cognition. That's not based in knowledge. That's based in who we are as humans, as performers. And I just have to respond to that. I mean, that I, I just love that. There's so much more to who we are than our cognitive ability. That does not, that is not what makes me Jennifer Carson. You know, that is, there is so much more to who I am as a human being than my cognitive ability. I, you know, there's a, a within each of us, uh, there's our humanity. There, there's something very special about each one of us that way beyond our cognition. 
Um, here in Nevada, I love it. My partners who I work with as part of Dementia Friendly Nevada, we wanted to have a fundraiser. And so we wanted, but we wanted our fundraising activities to create conversation in communities about dementia. So we started selling these t-shirts, uh, it was a t-shirt fundraiser campaign. And instead of it saying, I think, therefore I am, my partner said, let's cross out the word think. And let's just put, I am, therefore I am. In our society, we, we just, we obsess, we're cognitively obsessed. Um, and isn't that unfortunate? Because there's so much more to appreciate about each incredible person than just their cognitive abilities. That is not the essence of my humanity. It is simply just one component. And I'm not even sure it's, I don't think it's my strongest component. <laughs> so I think that I become the best version of myself when I learn to value all of who I am, not just my mind, not just my ability to think, um, not just my ability to operate in that factual based realm. And so um, how, do we help, how do we help our friends? How do we help our communities embrace more than cognition alone? How do we create that revolution for unknowing growing? How can, how can we each grow deeper into our authentic selves um, by not just being focused on our minds? Um, and so that's one thing I've learned from people living with dementia is to value different aspects of myself. And I'm very grateful for that. Well, I can't think of a better way to, uh, to bring this conversation, unfortunately, to an end. Um, I, again, I want to thank the three of you, Eileen, Claire, and, and Jennifer, um, for many things, including for taking all that you've learned and, and been given and given and paying it forward. Um, because I think I really do believe that we are a much, much, much better world for it. Um, so thank you. And um, I look forward to continuing to make that revolution with all of you. Bye-bye. Thank you.